We continue worshiping God together now as we come to him in his word. And we'll go to the gospel of Mark chapter 8 this morning. I'll begin reading in the 27th verse. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever who would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we consider this question of what does it really mean to follow Jesus, what is it that Christians really believe after all? I invite you to consider this. Consider imagination and wonder. Consider the question of why. I think that those attributes of why, wonder, and imagination all reflect, and I'll talk more about this in a few moments, the image of God and gives us a clue of who we are and whose we are. We get examples of that all the time. Most recently, the mission Perseverance to Mars. And the pursuit of finding out just even the smallest speck of life to somehow answer Big questions about the universe and about our life here on earth, even while we continue to ask questions about what is life here on earth. But of course, those wondrous explorations and amazing gifts didn't just begin yesterday. We've been doing it for a while. Consider Viking 1 and Viking 2 that first landed on Mars in the mid-1970s. We've been asking these deep-seated questions using our gifts of imagination and wonder and questions like why for a very long time. 
And we continue asking. But of course we live in a world that is full of all kinds of ideas. A primordial soup, if you will. Or as Jesus will call it, a sinful and adulterous generation. I mean, we, we have astrophysicists and biologists seeking truth. And then we have folks opening up their phones to read their horoscope to see what the truth is. And just about everything in between. And so we come to Jesus today and we ask him, we ask again, what is it that's true? What is it that we Christians believe? And as we walk our way through the text in Mark 8 today, we, we can't help but ask a couple more questions. And I think as you'll discover as we walk through the scriptures today, the questions will start mounting up. Just like I suspect Questions have mounted through the years in the pursuit of getting to Mars. And as those questions mount, sometimes we get exhausted. Sometimes we can't get beyond just trying to find the question of where's the remote control, right? Drives us crazy. And yet during this season of Lent, God is inviting you. He's inviting me. He's inviting all those who would ask the question why... Also the question, what is it that we believe? And he answers some of those questions for his disciples in Mark 8. What is it that we believe and why? And even more, what does it look like? Jesus even describes that in this text. Jesus will help us with both of those questions and more as we come into this text today. But as we keep coming back to what it is that Christians really believe, the season of Lent is a time to remember. And wherever you may be at on your journey of questions and your walk of faith, I invite you today to seek this truth. That's where we're going to go over these next few weeks. Even in the midst of the primordial soup of folks who have definitions of truth that range from astrophysics to horoscopes. We're going to wonder why. We're going to wonder. We're going to, more importantly, ask Jesus. And we're going to look at the truth. Now help us get there to get to where we are here. Let's rewind a bit like I often like to do and take us back into the Old Testament for a few moments. Give you a little picture of some of those questions that were going on even back then. In Numbers chapter 22 all the way to chapters 24, 25 or so, we get the testimony of, well, let's just face it, some scholars put it uh, very elegantly when they say it's very enigmatic. It's really strange, these chapters. Because while the people of God, the Israelites, in, are down in the valley, guess what they're doing at the camp of God? Complaining. They're complaining about being in the wilderness. They're complaining about how God's got them there and about how God is doing things and, and how things are. They're complaining to God. They, they're kind of taking God aside and Excuse me, God, you've kind of got this whole plan wrong. It should be more like this. And do you know what God is doing while they're complaining? 
He's protecting them, and they don't even know it. As one scholar put it, well, they're complaining, God is protecting. And what's going on is, one of the local kings is none too happy that the Israelites are in his neck of the woods, Balak. And so he's got this great plan. And that great plan is to do what he thinks you're supposed to do with the gods. Of course, he's wrong. And if you studied Micah with us a few, uh, well, I guess it's been a few months ago now, then you'll know that uh, God doesn't function like that. But Balak didn't know that. And so he decides he is going to take care of these Israelites by paying a, probably a sorcerer, but what? It's often called as a prophet, the prophet Balaam, who's not an Israelite. He's going to pay Balaam to talk to the Israelites' God and curse them. Right? And while he's paying Balaam to curse God's people, the people are complaining about God. And what is God doing? He's protecting them from Balaam and Balak. For he puts it on Balaam's heart to do nothing beyond what the Lord our God says. And it really bothers Balak when Balaam, instead of cursing God's people, bless them. That's not what I paid you for. Balaam speaks on behalf of God. Now, the story gets stranger, okay? Because at one point, Balaam doesn't get it and isn't speaking the word of God. And you think you go from this historical book in Numbers, it sounds to our modern ears to a fable. It sounds like a fable all a Shrek and his donkey, okay? Because Balaam is not speaking God's word or behaving as God quite wants him to and so he has the donkey speak to Balaam it's very strange and it's hard to understand with our modern ears and scholars as they generally agree that numbers is indeed a historical text wonder well well, maybe Balaam some have suggested was having a vision I don't think that's so I think God was acting supernaturally to get his word across. We don't have time to dive into all of those questions today. The bottom line is that God is protecting his people by guarding the good confession of Balaam and calling him ultimately to bless his people. So remember this, while they're complaining, God is protecting. And his word will not be thwarted. Daniel T. Olson, a scholar, said an individual called to be an instrument of God's working in the world, apparently from this text, he says, remains under God's vigilance, control, and judgment. This was true for Balaam. And by the way, if you wonder, was Balaam a good guy, a good prophet, or was he a bad guy? The Bible says yes to both of those questions. So Balaam was not perfect, but God would be vigilant with his word. God would not allow his word to be thwarted. His people would be blessed even though they were complaining. 
Now fast forward to another pagan area. Fast forward to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus takes his disciples. There's a photo I took of Caesarea Philippi in the days when you could travel to places. And I actually was privileged by God's grace to preach this text there. I'll look forward to when we get to travel again and go to places like this together. Jesus took his disciples there. uh, For I would presume a couple of reasons. One, no self-respecting Jew would go to Caesarea Philippi. Because they were worshiping pagan gods there. They were making sacrifices. For hundreds of years uh, before Christ, Pan was worshipped there. You can see in this picture some of the images of worship that were still there in its ruins today. And it's at this place, this pagan, primordial soup, right? Adulterous, sinful generation, not unlike back in the days of old with Israelites in the wilderness, not unlike what Jesus was experiencing in the first century. And by the way, if you haven't already fast-forwarded in your own mind, not unlike the world that we live in still today. So here in Caesarea Philippi, with all of this worship to other gods going on, some trying to do the same things that Balak tried to do, make a deal and pay off God at, uh, at these pagan altars, Jesus says to his disciples, so who do people say I am? Here at the headwaters of the Jordan River, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say I am? Now, this teaching is important. I like how one scholar puts it. You've heard me already reference it. He says this. This teaching concerns his, Jesus' person, his death and resurrection and his coming glory. It's thus the essence and almost the sum of Christian doctrine, for it includes the truth concerning the divine person of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, and the glorious return of Christ. These are cardinal points of the Christian faith. Jesus asks Peter. He asks his disciples. And Peter gets it right for about five minutes. He says, you're the Christ. But then Jesus starts talking about this whole thing about suffering and dying and rising again and being afflicted by the authorities And Peter's like, not unlike those complaining Israelites, "Ah, Jesus, let me take you aside for a moment. This is not what the Christ is supposed to do. Let me tell you, this is how you're supposed to be. Now, I haven't recently told someone, get behind me, Satan. But I can imagine that it would have been pretty startling for Peter to hear when Jesus said that to him. Because as we hear uh, this account from other Gospels, we know that Jesus uh, says to Peter, after making this confession of faith that you are the Christ, he says, on you I'll build my church. But then only a couple moments later, he says, get behind me, Satan. 
It's a pretty stark contrast, don't you think? But Jesus, like God with Balaam, like God with us, will not allow his word to be thwarted. Peter didn't understand what the Christ was to do and how he had come. Peter didn't understand. And Christ rebuked him and set him straight. Here in the midst of the primordial soup of a sinful and adulterous generation in this pagan world, he invites the disciples to confess and make a good confession. The cardinal points of the Christian faith that Jesus describes to them here. He doesn't just do it near Mount Hermon, where they were in Caesarea Philippi. He also invites us in the shadow of the Sandean Mountains where we live to answer this same question and make this same good confession of faith. You might not think about it quite like this, but every week when we pronounce the Apostles' Creed, we are anchoring ourselves not in a God of our own creation, not in a God who we are complaining to, let's admit we do that sometimes, not in a God who we want to take back and say, hey, no, you should really do it like this. We do that sometimes. But to a God who's in control of the universe, a God revealed to us in creation who created the world and who out of love pursues us. While we're complaining, he's protecting. Sounds a lot like Romans 5 while we were enemies of God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so when we confess the creed, we're confessing the truth of who God is. Now, I usually take about 10 weeks to teach the Apostles' Creed an hour and a half ago of it uh, with our youth. So I won't have that much time here this morning, but let me just take two minutes to review that confession of faith together with us. We believe in God the Father. Remember from the Lord's Prayer on Ash Wednesday, a relational God, not some force, but a personal relational God that we know by name. He's creative, and we see that creative beauty as we look out the window this morning and see God's handiwork in creation. The golden ratio that artists and scientists have noted in creation is God's handiwork. And while we magnificently pursue life on Mars, we often forget about the world teeming with life right here. A world created with just the right distance from the sun to have just the right temperature to be situated for life. God's creative work and our pursuit of it give evidence that we are made in the image of God. Just the fact that we can look out the window or go out into nature and appreciate its beauty shows us that we're made in the image of God. 
the way that we appreciate the beautiful music that we hear in worship as we have today. Beauty is evidence for the personal creative work of God our Father. And your appreciation of it is evidence of being made in his image. And then there's God the Son, who while we were yet sinners, died for us. While we complained, God protected. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God pursues us. And by the way, what does forgiveness really mean if it isn't saying that you're wrong? If you need forgiveness, it's because you're wrong. And so it's not a scapegoat to get off of things. It's a truth-telling to say that that is right and that is wrong. And God provides a means for us to come back into his presence through Christ our Lord, God the Son, Jesus our Lord. But God doesn't leave us alone. He is with us. And so God the Holy Spirit reminds us as he gives us the gift of faith that he is with us, that he is for us. No, not just a force, but a God in relationship with us. A God who is in relationship with himself as we see in the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as we noted as theologians call it way back uh, on Valentine's Day weekend a year ago talking about marriage. God lives in a perichoretic relationship. He exists in relationship. So no wonder if God, who we are made in his image, no longer do you, do we need to wonder why we long for relationship? Because God exists in relationship. And if you ever wonder why Christians take the uh, use of marriage and definition of it so seriously, because God created it as a living picture of unity, of self-sacrifice, of fidelity, of our relationship with God. It's a living human picture of our relationship with God. And so Jesus demanded of his disciples then, and he demands of us now, a right confession right in the midst of a misunderstanding world. In Caesarea Philippi, near Moab, and right here under the shadow of the Sandias. And it's no wonder then in this kind of world that this confession won't be easy, won't always be understood or even celebrated by others. And so Jesus says, having made that and inviting us to make that right and good confession of faith, What do we do? We carry the cross that we're called to bear. And so God demands us to carry a cross, to suffer for our neighbors and our loved ones, to not be tempted to do it our way, to try and make deals with God like Balak or Teach God a lesson like Peter tried to do. But to come humbly under this truth of who he is. 
and then work to bless the world with that truth, even if it means carrying a cross. And to bear a cross in our crazy world is to do that in the midst of all kinds of challenges. God's kingdom and the kingdom of his world, I like to say, don't just intersect in you, his people, they collide. As God comes to you in the Holy Spirit, he invites you to bear that cross and bear that good news to the world around you. Whether it's at 8 p.m. on a Thursday in your home or 11 a.m. on a Sunday, pick up your cross and follow him. Whether you're wondering about shooting for the stars to Mars or you think about what it means to be made in the image of God in this created world. Remember, as Ephesians 2.10 proclaims, we are created, like how one translation calls it, as God's work of art. And the artist gets to decide what his work of art is and what it does. Created for good works to glorify our Father in heaven. So friends, from the headwaters of the Jordan River to the flowing waters of the Rio Grande, right into your backyard, make the good confession of faith and pick up the cross and follow him. Amen.